We are in uh, a series that we are calling The Talk, and The Talk is a candid conversation about love and marriage and sex and dating and singleness. Because if anyone should be talking about these things, it should be the church. Uh, These relational aspects were God's design um, from the beginning. And if anyone should be talking freely about them, it should be God's people. And yet we tend to be the ones who shirk in shame uh, and we avoid talking about some of these precious issues while our culture and Hollywood has no problem talking about these things. And having grown up in the church, these things weren't talked about. And so one of the commitments I made um, when I became a dad was I wanted my kids to hear about these things and hear about these things from me. And uh, in many ways, what this series is, is what I want my kids to know about love and sex and dating and singleness. And um, it's also what I wish I would have known about these things growing up. Um, This morning, we're going to spend some time talking about sex and sexuality in church um, of all places, which is such um, such a great a great thing. If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to First Corinthians chapter six. Uh, First Corinthians chapter six. We're going to spend some time looking at a passage of scripture uh, that will start at verse twelve and it's going to go all the way through um, to verse twenty. First Corinthians chapter six. Um, starting um, at verse 12, and we're going to go all the way through verse uh, 20. And um, while you do that, let me tell you a little bit about this place called Corinth, um, the church to which this letter is being um, addressed. Uh, Corinth um, was, um, it was a very, very interesting place. It was driven by the idea that you ought to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. Reach for the next high, for tomorrow you may die. And the pleasure high of choice in in the culture and in Corinth was experimentation and free expression and exploration with their sexuality. It was an oversexed culture. Everyone was doing it and everyone was trying to outdo each other at it. Sex was so pervasive in the Corinthian culture uh, that it had even become a part of worship rituals in their key religious context. A way to appease their gods, a way to please their gods was to enter into all kinds of sexual experience and sexual expression. Interestingly, Enough. In fact, if you wanted to, to find and get a prostitute, the prime location to do that would have been at the temple. So, not to be excluded, not to be outdone, the church in Corinth started to play right in and play right along with the sexualization of the Corinthian culture. And they saw no problem with it whatsoever. Maximize pleasure because tomorrow you might die. And no better way to do that than to freely express, experience, you know, explore your sexuality. And so Paul writes the Corinthian church a little note that we call First Corinthians. And what he's trying to do is teach them some theology on sex and sexuality. He wants to bring to bear what God has to say about their sexuality and their sexual expression. And he does that by going after some of their famous thoughts, their famous philosophies. He addresses some of the misconceptions that have permeated the church and are now influencing the way they're carelessly expressing themselves sexually. Um, it's, it's a really, really powerful passage of Scripture. And for me, based on how I grew up, uh, I would turn to a passage like this and fully expect that Paul would launch a vicious attack against sex and sexuality, talking about it is gross, it is bad, your body parts will start to fall off, and, and it will burn when you pee. 
So save it for marriage. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the message I heard. Save it for someone you love. Um, but that's not at all Paul's approach when he speaks this oversexed culture that's permeating the church. He doesn't say sex is bad. He says sex is better and more beautiful than you're treating it. And so he gives them some theology to correct their misconception. And then he just gives them some practical thoughts to live by. And I think Paul's correction echoes from Corinth to Kosciuszko, and it has the potential to help reset some of our misconceptions about sex and sexuality. Now, before we read this passage, I want to give um, a quick note to us um, before we go on. This is Paul correcting misconceptions. And I think as we lean into this passage, we are going to feel like this is a correction. Because of some of the ways the Corinthian culture is similar to the culture in which we live, some of this is going to feel very corrective. And because it's going to feel corrective, it may run the risk of feeling very heavy to us. It, it may feel like, man, Paul is calling us out, and, um, but we're going to get a sense that what Paul is ultimately going to say is sex and sexuality is a beautiful thing that ought to be treated beautifully. So let's read this section of Scripture um, in its entirety, and then we are going to come back and um, just pull it apart and make some observations of what Paul is communicating. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food And God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and will raise us also. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know? Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, what Paul is going to do is surface some misconceptions that were influencing the church, and then he's going to correct them with some of God's truth. And the first misconception Paul addresses is the misconception that says, and we've heard this word a lot in this series, so it shouldn't be new to us, but it's a misconception that says, sex is my prerogative. Because I'm free to do what I want any old time. And the quote that drove this idea is the quote in verse 12. Look at it again. It shows up two times. It says, I have the right to do anything. Sex is my prerogative. And then a little bit later, it says it again. I have the right to do anything. Show me a rule against it. What's wrong with it? Because if you can't show me what's wrong with it, it must be right. After all, I have the right to do whatever I want. This way of thinking was born out of a a distortion of the idea of grace. And and, um, here's how the concept of grace works. Um, There are two economies. There are two constitutions. 
There's the constitution of the law, and there's the constitution of grace. Now, the constitution of the law says that if you can perfectly keep your good behavior, and if you can perfectly keep God's laws, then you're in with God. The constitution of grace says, "Eh, dummy, you cannot perfectly keep good behavior. You cannot perfectly keep the law or the commands of God. So therefore, Jesus has kept perfectly the commands of God. He's kept perfectly the law of God and has behaved perfectly on your behalf. Therefore, you can now come to God, not based on the fact that you've kept all the laws perfectly, but based on the fact that you're hiding behind Jesus who has. Jesus has kept the law perfectly because you couldn't. And so now you don't have to keep the law perfectly in order to be right with God. The Corinthians heard that and they say, ooh, if Jesus has perfectly kept the law for me, then it's my right to do whatever. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. It's not about trying to keep a bunch of rules and maintaining a a bunch of good behavior. It's about grace. So therefore, I have the right to do what I want. Sex is my prerogative. There's no law against it. Um... This is a very dangerous way of thinking about the concept of grace. Jesus got it right for me, so I have the right to do me. So by the time Paul is writing, um, Christian liberty had become this, this lie that gave license to live however they wanted. So I can make out with whom I want when I want. It's my prerogative. I can sext whom I want when I want. It's my prerogative. Show me a law uh, against it. And even if you can, Jesus has kept the law for me. I can sleep with whom I want whenever I want. And the Corinthians were sleeping with with family members. and, And they were paying prostitutes at the Corinthian temples because it's my Rights and sex is my prerogative. What's wrong with maximizing pleasure? You Christians and all your rules. Now, again, I would fully expect that Paul would enter into this conversation um, and just lose his holy stuff. But he responds to this misconception so tenderly by simply adding a quote of his own to correct or improve the quote that they were using. Look again at the first part of verse 12. I have the right to do anything. Sex is my prerogative, you say. Then Paul adds this, but not everything is beneficial. It's my right. Okay. But are you using your right to make the people around you better? Are you using your right to benefit the people around you? See, because when Jesus perfectly kept the law and freed you, from the law. He didn't free you from the law to give you license to live however. He freed you from the law so that you could become introduced to an even better law. What does Jesus say? A new law I give you. Look at John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new law, a new command I give you that you would love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. I have selflessly and sacrificially loved you to see you soar, to see you become everything you were created to be. Now, new law, figure out how you can selflessly and sacrificially help the people around you to become everything that God designed them to be. How can you help the people around you to be better? This is powerful. And in giving this correction, Paul introduces a theological truth um, about sex and sexuality. Um, And here it is. Paul admits that sex is pleasurable. 
sex is pleasurable. He acknowledges that it's pleasurable. Yeah, if you're going to maximize pleasure, sex is not a bad way to do it. And let's assume you have the right to do that. You have the right to maximize pleasure. Okay. What Paul says is, let me improve this idea that you've bought into. And tell you that people, though, are more important than pleasure. This new law of love is more important than your liberty. This is shocking to me. I would expect Paul to come and say, it's wrong, 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 wrong. But he doesn't argue with it. He said, no, it's pleasurable. And let's assume it's your right. The most beautiful thing you can do with your right is what Jesus has invited you to, which is lay it down in order to help the other people become a fullest version of everything that they were created to be. What should you do with your right if not to help them? Send me a pic. Come on, girl. Send me a picture. The question is not whether or not you have the right to do that with your phone. The question is how on earth does that benefit the person that you are interacting with? How on earth does that help move them into to a place where they are more of what Christ created them to be? Hey, would you perform this, you know, this act on me because I'm trying to maximize pleasure? Okay, let's assume that how does that help the other person become a fuller version of everything that they were created and designed to be? Hey, can I use your body for my pleasure a little bit? How does that help the other person? How is that beneficial? And that's the question Paul asks. Yes, sex is pleasurable, but people are more important than my pleasure. So are you using your prerogative to think what's best for her? Are you using your prerogative to think what's best for him? And then he gives a second corrective quote in response to this idea that no, sex is my prerogative. Look at the second part of verse 12. I have the right to do anything. Sex is my prerogative. And Paul says, yeah, but I will not be mastered by anything. Because sex is not just pleasurable. Sex is powerful. Sex is powerful. Uh, This idea that I have the right to do anything is literally, I have the power to do anything. And Paul says that, okay, let's assume that's true. And he says, but I, for one, refuse to be overpowered by anything. And here's what Paul is saying. If you use your freedom to carelessly indulge your sexuality, you will lose your freedom to your sexuality. It is a powerful thing. If you use your rights wrongly, your sexuality will overpower you. That's why, church, if this were a safe enough place for us to be honest with each other, we would tell stories of the way we used our freedom and we used our rights to run after something sexually, and now it owns us. We would talk about ways we used our power to go and freely express our sexuality, only to find we are no longer free and our sexuality has overpowered powered us. We would talk about ways where we can no longer say no to our impulses and our urges to look one more time, to touch a little bit more, to self-gratify a little bit more, if we were honest. Paul is saying it is a powerful thing. And before you know it, this bragging about I can do whatever I want will strip you from the ability to say no. Because now, what you cannot do, apparently, is stop. So how free are you? It's a powerful, powerful thing. 
And I can't stop messing around. And I can't stop trading those Snapchat pics. And I, I, I keep getting lost in this laptop because I lost my freedom to the thing I felt completely free to go after. It's a powerful thing. If you use your right wrongly, it will master you. Again, I would think Paul would say, it's bad, it's wrong, it's gross. But he says, no, you need to know how powerful this thing is that God has designed in us. But thankfully, there is a Savior who can break the power of any sin and any shame and any guilt. What I wish someone would have told me growing up was not how wrong and gross sexual expression was, but how powerful. Because as I was telling a friend just the other day, I still live with the effects of the shackles that latched onto me because I used my freedom, my right to maximize pleasure only to find myself owned by it. So Paul teaches some theology on sex. Sex is a pleasurable thing. I mean, if you want to maximize pleasure, it's a great way to do it. By the way, I hope we tell our kids that. Can we be honest with our kids? I mean, in our attempt to scare our kids away from doing it, we lie to them. It's just, it's awful. It is terrible. Again, it will burn forever, and you just don't want to do it. And then one day our kids are going to find out, like, you lied. That was not true. Y'all must be doing it wrong. Um, But what we need to tell our, our kids is, yeah, it's pleasurable, but kids, people are more important than your pleasure. Always. Do not use people for your pleasure. That's not the way Jesus has interacted with you. The new law is not license. The new law is love. And sex is a powerful thing. Let's teach our kids that. Let's remind each other of that. If they use sex in ways God has not designed, it will overpower and it will own them. As it will us and as it has for many of us. But before Paul gets into talking about, okay, then what does it mean then to to use sex rightly? He surfaces a second misconception that is permeating the Corinthian church. And it's the idea, not just that sex is my prerogative. It's this idea that sex is just physical. Sex is just physical. Uh, There was a full-fledged idea and belief in the Corinthian church that sex was nothing more than a physical transaction, a biological transaction between people. No biggie. It's just physical. Did I mention that apart from the county fair, Corinth and Kosciuszko were pretty similar in ways? Sex is just physical. And in order to bolster that stance, they used another famous quote. Look at it in verse 13, the first part. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Um, uh, Those of you who... Uh, like philosophy, will appreciate uh, some of this. But this idea um, was born out of a philosophy known as dualism. Dualism believed that human beings are, are made up of two separate and distinct constitutions. Within me, there is the constitution of the physical, and there's the constitution of the spiritual. There's a constitution of the material, and there's a constitution of the immaterial. There is the constitution of my body, my physical body, and then there's the constitution of my soul. What dualism said is the real me is my soul, the immaterial part of me. 
They went so far as to say what my body is, is just a disposable, discardable shell that carries the real me, which is my soul. And so when God comes in Jesus Christ to save me, what he saves is my soul, the real me. My body is it's irredeemable. He doesn't really care about my body. So when I become a believer, the real me has been redeemed. And now it has to live trapped in this gross, disposable, despicable, deplorable shell called the body. This is the prison that's incarcerating the real me. But don't worry. When you die, this body is going to go into the ground and God is going to destroy it anyway. Which led to this belief that my body is just this useless, disposable shell. Now imagine for a moment what happens when you believe that your body is uh, disposable. When you believe that your, your body is dispensable. The Corinthians said, huh, if that's true then I might as well floor this thing. I might as well take this thing on the wildest ride imaginable. I might as well return it, having absolutely used it up and ran it down. And if this dispensable body is good for nothing else but bringing me pleasure, then I am going to absolutely get as much pleasure out of it as I can. The body for food and food for the body. The body for sex and sex for the body. What else is it good for? You might as well take it on a joyride. And that's exactly what the Corinthian church and the Corinthian culture was doing with their physical bodies. Have as much sex as possible because it's just your body. It's just physical. God doesn't care about my body. Therefore, God doesn't care what I do with my body. That hookup is just biological. That sexual experience, it's not serious. It's just casual. It's just a picture of my, you know, my dispensable body that I sent to this person. It's just a body. It's just physical. Who cares? And then Paul steps in. And without indictment, without judgment, he corrects this misconception. Sex is physical. But sex is not just physical. It is so much more than that. And in order to convince them, to correct them, and to bring some theology to bear, Paul goes off on some body truth, some body theology. And this is awesome. Look at verse 13. Okay, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And then he says, but the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? The Corinthian minds are blown. They have never heard anything remotely resembling what the apostle Paul just told them. He told them, your body is not dispensable. He says, your body is precious. No one would have told them that before. He said, the Lord is for your body. The Lord cares about your body. And if he is for it, it must be valuable. It must be precious. I love this. And Paul says, if there's any doubt, by the way, and he goes off on this tangent about Jesus. You know, Jesus was raised and, you know, and you be raised too. It's like, wait, Paul, why are you saying that? 
It's a powerful truth. He's asking the Corinthians, hey, when Jesus came from heaven to earth to rescue us, what did he come in? A body. Yep. He lived in a body. He suffered in a body. He died in a body. And then God raised him in a body. Jesus liked the body so much that when he went to heaven, he took the body with him. Matter of fact, he's sitting right now with his body, scars and all. And then he takes it a step further and says, oh, by the way, he's going to raise you too. Meaning, yeah, your body might decompose for a little bit in the ground. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to call your body out of the ground. He's going to renovate, fix a rubber, restore that thing, refurbish that thing to the fullest version of everything he intended it to be. Not a different body than the body you're wearing right now. But this very body is going to be rejuvenated and renovated. Why would he go to all that length? Unless your body was precious to him. And then he goes a step further and says, not only is your body precious, but your body was purchased. He says, not only is he for your body, but your body is for him. Later on in the passage, it says, your body was bought at a price. God purchased your body with his son's body. Now, this is going to speak to somebody who may be struggling with some body image issues. But listen, God does not purchase things that are not valuable. If God bought it and owns it, it must be a valuable thing. He purchased it. And because it's precious and because he purchased it, your body therefore has purpose. This would have shocked the Corinthians. And he uses this idea that your body, this is weird, but it's true, that when God saved you in your body, he fused your body organically and inseparably to Christ's body. Now your body and Christ's body are organically connected. That's a trip. And that's another way of saying you have so much purpose. Think about that for mission for a quick second. It means Jesus is now touching the world through your body. When you reach out and engage someone, heaven gets a touchdown on earth through your body. And Paul brings to bear some body theology that absolutely blows their minds. Your body is not a dispensable, discardable thing that doesn't matter to God. Otherwise, he wouldn't have used one to come and rescue your body, which is going to restore and take to be with his body forever. And right now, they're already organically fused. If that's true. You can never say sex is just physical. There's no way to make that argument anymore. And what Paul says to the Corinthians is he says to them, and he talks about this prostitute. He says, now, how can you go and engage or unite yourself with a prostitute. In fact, let's look at what he says here. Verse 15, the second part. Shall I then take the members of Christ, since I'm now connected to Christ, and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. Now, if their minds were blown about their body matters, this phrase would have just undone them. It would have sent shockwaves through the church. Not the word prostitute, but the word uniting. That would have sent shockwaves because they would have heard coming out of Paul's mouth or coming out of off of Paul's parchment for the first time what we need to be convinced of. And what he says is sex is permanent. 
It's not just physical because my body doesn't matter. He says your body matters so immensely and it's so connected to Christ that every sexual encounter you have is now permanent. He uses the word uniting. The two shall become one. Every time you have sex, you become one with that someone. It's more than just physical. Sex is inseparably binding. Sex is permanently uniting. Paul is saying that when you sleep with a prostitute, you become one with her. And you drag Christ into this thing since you are organically fused to him. Because this idea that the two shall become one flesh is not a suggestion, it's a guarantee. Whenever you sleep with someone, your bodies make a promise to each other that cannot be broken in this life. It is permanent by virtue of the way he has designed us. And by the way, when it uses the term body, it's speaking about my entire constitution. It's speaking about me psychologically. It's speaking about me emotionally. It's speaking about me mentally. And what Paul is saying is when someone unites with a prostitute, they unite permanently. They become one mentally, psychologically. That means church. There is no such thing as casual sex. You will never have a one-night stand, ever. Just because your bodies walk in separate directions doesn't mean that uniting has been undone. The two become one. Every aspect of my being, my body, mentally, emotionally, psychologically. And we understand that. That's why regret after a sexual encounter is not just physical. It's not just biological. That's why the scars of sexual abuse are not just physical. Sex is not just physical. You cannot wash that off your body no matter how many showers you take because it's more than physical. It affects psychologically, emotionally. It affects every aspect of your being. And Paul says that happens when you unite, when you sleep with someone else. That's why the scars of infidelity are not just physical. That's why you feel icky when, you know... You sleep with your spouse if everything else in your marriage is not great. It's like, uh, I feel like we're united in more ways than our reality is actually experiencing. That's why some of us like to cuddle afterwards. I want to know it's more than just this thing. I want to know it's the whole thing. It, it affects the entire being. So if you don't intend, by the way, to permanently fuse to someone... Don't sleep with them. Because sex is permanent. By the way, it's interesting to think through how is Paul defining sex? Um, the answer is there are a variety of ways that we could, you know, suspect and, and think through. But I'm not sure how Paul is defining uniting with a prostitute. He's not specific enough for my liking. Um, is it limited to going all the way? I'm not sure. For somebody to wound me, or for me to have an experience, or for infidelity to happen, does it only mean going all the way? I don't know. Oh, I know the answer to that part. So the best advice would be don't let things get sexual with a prostitute. Or anyone else that you're not permanently fused to in marriage. 
And if for no other reason, don't let things get sexual because that's in no way beneficial to the other person. How does that help them become the fullest version of everything that God intended and designed them to be? I wish someone would have told me that sex is permanent. And because it's permanent, it should be reserved for someone you're in a permanent covenant with. And we call that permanent covenant marriage. It's interesting, the Bible doesn't say don't have sex outside of marriage just to be difficult. It doesn't say don't do it because it's going to be awful. Don't do it because it will never feel good outside of marriage. It's saying don't do it because it's permanently binding and there's only one place where it's appropriate to have a permanently binding experience and that's in a permanently binding relationship any other place will bring damage and the lord loves us we love to say god is restrictive and and god just loves to keep good things from us he doesn't want us to maximize pleasure god knows this will damage if not in the appropriate context my wife um has trouble when my kids uh you know stick their you know their posters i have one for my daughter here you know but they stick their posters on you know uh, their walls with scotch tape she loses her mind um this is going to rip off the paint when you're done with it let alone if they're like Judah was here, you know, with permanent marker on the wall. She doesn't go for that, you know, just duct taping stuff on the wooden doors. Uh, she loses her mind a little bit. Um, and when you use the most permanently binding human super tape called sex, what do you think will happen when you're done with that relationship? And you attempt to pull apart it will bring damage and you will end up carrying those tattered pieces into your next relationship talk about bringing baggage into the marriage because it's permanent but thankfully there is a restorer And we'll come back to him in a second. And oh my goodness, would I be sitting up here apart from him? Sex is permanent. It's not just physical. Don't treat it casually. Never use a permanent thing in a temporary way. Sex is pleasurable. Sex is powerful. Sex is permanent. And then Paul adds one more thing that I want us to see. And it's the idea that sex is a picture. Sex is a picture. We saw Paul say this in verse 16, for it is said at the end of the verse, the two will become one flesh. The last time we saw Paul borrow that phrase from the book of Genesis was in Ephesians chapter Remember this, those of you who were here. Look at verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife's marriage, and the two will become one flesh. Speaking again about the sexual um, relationship. And then he says in verse 32, this is a profound mystery. But I'm not talking so much about a husband and a wife. I'm talking about Christ and the church. The two will become organically and inseparably one. And mainly, I mean Christ and the church. I love this because marriage exists to paint a picture of Christ and his love for the church. And because sex is for marriage, sex is somehow designed to paint a picture of Christ and his church. And of course, we don't have too much time to get into this, but I love the beautiful picture of our hope painted even in these 
words. I mean, don't be weirded out. But if you are, that's fine. I think you get past it. Um, Christ selflessly and sacrificially gave himself up for the church in order to see the church become everything she was intended to be. Christ selflessly and sacrificially gave himself up for the church so that he could remove the obstacle of sin and shame and death in order that Christ would fully know the church and the church would fully know Jesus. In order that the church would fully enjoy Jesus and Jesus would fully enjoy the church. In order that Christ would see the church as the church is and the church would see Christ as he is. Christ came in order to, did I mention, remove any obstacle that stood between him and the most intimate and ecstatic encounter with his church. What is standing in the way of me being able to engage fully and enjoy fully with my church, that has to get out of the way so that we can experience being permanently fused. So that we can experience pleasures evermore, which apparently are at the right hand of Jesus Christ in heaven. Sex is a picture of obstacles removed and two people who are seeing each other for who they are. Everything that stood in the way has been gone and now they get to experience oneness, intimacy, joy. Forever. I love the picture that sex is able to paint of what Jesus Christ intends to do in that place called heaven where we'll never be separated ever again. And every obstacle will be fully and finally removed. Is it any mystery to you? That the enemy goes after sex more than he goes after anything else. Marriage and sex. Have you ever thought about why? He hates the picture of unrestricted intimacy between Christ and his church. He hates the picture of delighting in the person of Jesus Christ. He hates the picture of this permanent fusion that he'll be excluded from. And so he does everything to distort it. He does everything to make sure the culture turns it up on its head. He does everything he can to make sure that the church crouches in shame and we can't say sex and we can't even name vaginas and penises for our kids. We use code language because, ooh, Lord forbid we talk about that. Is it any surprise? That, that married couples cannot even consider that Christ is like, yes, good job, you guys. No, 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 Jesus, we know you're omniscient, but if you don't mind stepping out for this, we're about to have a moment. We'll invite you back when we're done. There's shame surrounded by this, and the enemy loves it. I think the church ought to reclaim the picture. I think the church, more than anybody else, ought to celebrate this thing that he's designed, but it ought to be celebrated and enjoyed in its appropriate place. The issue is not that it's not pleasurable. I want my kids to know it's pleasurable, but I want my kids to understand that it's more important things than pleasure. I think the church ought to reclaim something so beautiful, and that paints a picture of Christ so powerfully. You wonder why sex is such a struggle for so many of us. The enemy is going to go after that because he hates the picture it paints. I refuse to lay down and say, you can have that, devil. And we won't talk about it in the church, devil. This very thing that paints a picture of our very hope. Let me say this before we close and um, head out. We're going to come back and again wrap some things um, next week. You know, questions like, well, what if you messed up and you, you're not, what if you're not with the one? What if you, what do you do and how do you, we'll talk about some of the questions that have emerged from this series. But let me say this. Jesus came to this world in a body, mind you, in order to remove every obstacle that stood in the way. 
in order to make us the fullest version of ourselves. What Paul would say is sex is a beautiful thing. Don't misuse it. But I also know for a fact that what the Apostle Paul would want us to know is don't miss grace. If you're like me, then you know you have made a mess of your sexuality. And I love the fact Jesus is not intimidated by scotch tape. Jesus is not intimidated by duct tape. Jesus is not intimidated by permanent markers. Jesus is not intimidated by super glue. Jesus is not intimidated by permanent fusions that have left just wreckage in their wake. Jesus has the ability to restore and refurbish and give a fresh and new start. He loves to forgive. He loves to cleanse so that regardless of what your past has looked like sexually, today can be a brand new day with a brand new start. The enemy would love for you to live in the shame of the things you've done in the past. And Jesus is towering over that and saying, grace, I will freely and fully forgive. Now, y'all are going to have to talk about it in your marriage and figure things out. But the Lord will be for us to restore and return what the enemy has attempted to steal. I love this verse. Look at it up on the screens. 1 John 1, 9. In fact, as we close, I'd love for us all to stand. And whether you are carrying a certain weight or a burden of, you know, mistakes made or not, I would love for all of us to just declare this over our own souls, and I hate to be vindictive, but I'd love for us to declare this in the enemy's face. 1 John 1, 9. Can we just read this out loud together? And by the way, I don't have to say, let's do this again. So let's make sure we all understand the definition of out loud (laughs) together. I mean, let's declare our forgiveness. Let's declare his restoration. Let's declare our hope in Jesus finished work. Let's read this together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from. Jesus, thank you so much that for any of us who have misused this beautiful gift, this beautiful picture of our sexuality that you restore. For those of us who are in places where we're overpowered by sin, you can break those shackles. So thank you, Lord, that each and every one of us gets to walk out of this room with hope, with a fresh start, with free forgiveness. And we pray that by your spirit, you'd enable us to reclaim, and even as this passage said, to flee sexual immorality. But you'd give us the power to reclaim such a beautiful picture by using it the way you designed it to be used. So dismiss us with your freedom, with your forgiveness, and with your blessing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.